0: Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. I'm sorry about the long break, life got a little hectic there for me, and so I needed a little bit of time off to kind of get everything under control and get back to being able to write and in the right headspace to write episodes. So I'm glad to be back and giving you guys another episode. Today we're going to go back to our roots, a great fire in Chicago. No, we're not going to talk about the great fire of Chicago again. We're going to leave the O'Leary family alone. No, today we're going to talk about the Iroquois Theater Fire of 1903. So as we've covered previously, Chicago has had a major history of fires. The great Chicago fire has warmed its way into the collective consciousness of the United States. Mrs. O'Leary's cow has been blamed for years for a fire that cow absolutely did not start. Obviously, in the two years after the Great Fire of Chicago, the Firewatch was insane. It was round-the-clock. It was year-round. No one ever went off a Firewatch to make sure that the Great Chicago Fire did not happen again. Everyone was on constant high alert because, well, they'd literally just watched most of the city burn to the ground. And there were very minimal fires in those two years after the Great Chicago Fire. Insurance companies paid out about 10% of the premiums they received in 1872 and 1873, which meant huge profits for insurance companies in Chicago. It also showed insurance companies that Chicago could prevent fires. Eventually, though, complacency kicked in and the memory of the fire started to fade away, and the fire watch wasn't so effective anymore. And that's when the little-known second great fire of Chicago, known as the Little Big Fire of 1874, happened. This one happened on July 14, 1874, and it's the one that really changed Chicago. It was significantly smaller than the Great Fire that everybody knows about. It only burned about 47 or so acres compared to the 2,112 acres the fire in 1871 burned. The fire destroyed just over 800 buildings and caused about $4 million worth of damage. But the Board of Underwriters was not pleased about having to pay out insurance claims for this, so they sent out resolutions on July 15th literally the day after the fire, demanding the city reorganize the fire department, give full control for fire safety to the fire marshal, enforce fire limits, enlarge the city water mains, and basically get rid of all the wooden awnings and overhangs that were allowing the fire to spread so easily. The city replied to these seemingly reasonable demands by doing absolutely none of that. So on October 1st, 1874, the National Board of Underwriters petitioned insurance companies to pull all coverage On buildings in Chicago until they made the demanded changes. And insurance companies sure did. For a while in late 1874, buildings throughout Chicago had absolutely no insurance and could not get any no matter what they tried. The city then, wisely, decided to fix those problems and got their building coverage back. They restructured the whole fire department, going so far as to hire the fire chief of New York City to fix it, extended fire limits, and increased the size of the city water mains. And just to make clear, the fire limit was the area in the city that the buildings there couldn't be made of wood. They had to be made of brick or stone. Basically, all of that is to tell you the city of Chicago was fire prevention obsessed, and for good reason. They'd lost a lot to fires in the preceding 50 years before 1903. There was one small part of fire prevention that seemed to get ignored in all of these changes, though. The interiors of buildings, specifically theaters. Theaters throughout Chicago were absolute nightmares. They would frequently cram as many people into the standing room-only area of the theater as they could possibly fit. People would be sitting or standing in the aisles to watch plays. The theaters were full of draperies and decorations that made it look absolutely grand, but were immensely good fuel for a rapidly spreading fire. Many in Chicago could very clearly see this insane risk, but as per usual, nothing was being done about it. Because that would cost money, and God forbid we spend money to prevent bad things from happening. One newspaper did decide to at least try to do something about it, albeit in a very confusing way. The Chicago Times ran an article on the front page of their Saturday newspaper on February 13, 1875, with the headline, Burned Alive. It would go on to tell the story of a Chicago theater that was engulfed in flames with subheadings that read, The Angel of Death Brings Terrible Moaning to Chicago, and The Weak Trampled to Death. They even included the names of the dead, like actual names of people, right there in the obituary section. It wasn't real. The story was written and printed as a warning to the people of Chicago. The theaters we have right now are dangerous. They will eventually kill a lot of people, and we have to do something about it. But people were outraged by the article. They were repeatedly sued. The Chicago Tribune wrote a response article that claimed a woman died of shock after reading the article in the Chicago Times about one of her relatives dying. That article was also fake, but nonetheless. Theater owners demanded that the Chicago Times apologize and write another article stating that the theaters were fireproof. It was a whole mess, and the whole warning would get lost in the outrage. Nothing would change, and nothing would be done. You see, Chicago had done a decent job of trying to prevent outward fire spread. They'd removed wooden roads and buildings and all that kind of stuff. They had put all their effort in preventing another city burning down fire, but at the cost of essentially ignoring another disaster that could kill just as many, if not more, people. They more or less ignored fire spread actually inside buildings. And that brings us to the Iroquois Theater. The Iroquois planned to be the most grand theater in all of Chicago. The owners of the theater who were planning on building were a syndicate consisting of Harry Powers and Will Davis out of Chicago, Mark Claw and Abe Erlinger out of New York City, and Samuel Nixon and J. Fred Zimmerman out of Philadelphia. Ostensibly ran by just Powers and Davis alone, the syndicate would choose the most opulent location they could in Chicago on Randolph Street between Dearborn and State Streets, right in the heart of downtown Chicago. The architectural plans were completed in 1902. Well, they were originally completed in July of 1902, but the architect would fiddle around with them until December when the plans were approved ground would be broken on the theater in the summer of 1903. The building was rumored to have cost between 500000 to $1.1 million in 1903, which is a ton of money. Although the building permit said it would have cost 300000 only, so those numbers may be a bit of grandeur propaganda to make it seem more opulent than it really was. And I just want to talk about how ground was broken in 19- summer of 1903. The fire that we're going to discuss happened in December of 1903. So this building was put up in a little over five months, as quickly as they possibly could, which may have contributed to a lot of the issues that we're going to discuss soon. But just because it was put up quick does not mean it did not look grand. The outside had giant twin Corinthian columns. On one column was a statue of comedy, and on the other, tragedy. Over the center was a statue of an Iroquois Native American that the theater was named after. It looked like a temple. Inside, the interior entrance hall was 53 feet tall and held an insane amount of marble that would make Augustus himself jealous. The stage was 60 feet wide and 110 feet deep. The auditorium was a whopping 6,300 square feet. Every single inch of it was immaculately decorated. And the seating was immense for its time. It had three layers of seating. There was the ground floor or the parquet. This is where the super expensive tickets were. They had the best sight lines and the best sound quality from the stage. This area sat a whopping 744 people in total with two boxes on either side for those too rich to sit with the only moderately rich. The next level was the dress circle. This was the middle class area. You could still see everything but it was high enough off the ground. You could also see the top of the proscenium arch. The proscenium arch is that arch that is at the front of the stage and the audience, kind of supposed to make it look like a division between the audience and the actors. This area held 465 people in seats. And then the final level was the gallery. These were the cheap seats. They held 475 people in seats. The official total capacity was 1,724 people, which was the most in Chicago at the time. But in practice, it was way more than that because it wasn't really frowned upon to have people standing in the back or in the aisles or whatever. They just jammed as many people as they possibly could into each sewing, exit paths be damned. The theater finally opened on November 23rd, 1903, with a building inspector report that read, and this is no joke, building completed, okay. Super excellent review of the building there. Everything went without a hitch for a bit, because let's talk a bit about fire safety in theaters. You see... Now, theaters have a whole host of requirements as far as fire safety. Clearly marked exits with exit signs. None of those in this theater. Sprinkler systems? Not in this one. Fire alarms? Absolutely none. Fire extinguishers? They had some. Only six. And you had to physically throw the sodium bicarbonate contents onto the fire, which is less than helpful if the fire was, you know, 40 feet above your head. Hell, they didn't even have phones backstage to call for help on in the case of a fire. There was no way to let the outside world know there was a fire until it either breached the exterior or terrified theatergoers came streaming out screaming. From purely a fire protection standpoint, the theater was a death trap. But it wasn't supposed to have been that way. The architect, Benjamin Marshall, claimed to have carefully studied every single theater disaster in history to avoid any potential disasters. Every playbill given out to the theatergoers had absolutely fireproof stamped on it right next to the top. He claimed that the entire theater could be emptied in five minutes if all exits were used properly, which is technically true. They technically had enough exit doors for the entire theater to empty in five minutes, but they didn't really have a good way of showing them where those exit doors were or where any of those exits actually existed. Basically, it would turn out to be a lie. Not long before the opening, the theater was inspected by Captain Patrick Jennings of Engine Company 13 of the Chicago Fire Department. What he found was, well, he found essentially nothing. Like I said earlier, no sprinkler system, no fire alarm system, the exits were covered by drapes, no pike pulls to pull down burning scenery up in the air to help extinguish it, and even if they did have that, they didn't have any fire buckets to actually put water on the burning stuff, no exit signs, and absolutely none of the standpipes, the pipes to give firefighters water access inside the building, were actually connected. And then, there were those fire extinguishers that required you to forcibly hurl the contents on the base of the fire. No idea how you would forcibly hurl the contents on a fire 40 feet above your head, but they had six of them, like I said. Captain Jennings reported this to the theater house fireman, William Salers. Salers told him the owners knew about all the issues, but they would fire him if he complained too much. So then Captain Jennings reported it to his boss, 1st Battalion Chief Jack Hannon. Hannon basically said the same thing. The owners know there's nothing they can do. That is not true. The city of Chicago gave the Chicago Fire Department permission to tear down buildings that did not follow fire code. This building did not follow fire code. But remember, this is Chicago in the early 1900s. And if there's one thing that Chicago is known for in the early 1900s, Besides baseball, it is corruption. So, even if they had tried and made a stink of it, it likely wouldn't have mattered because, again, it's Chicago in the early 1900s, so they probably all would have lost their jobs for, you know, doing their jobs properly because this was Chicago and Chicago is synonymous with corruption. So, on the evening of November 23rd, 1903, the musical Mr. Bluebeard was to be performed at the Iroquois Theater on opening day a play about a man who marries a sister, then murders her, then marries the next sister, and then murders her, and then marries the next sister and murders her, and repeats that process four more times until finally the last sister that he marries opens the room where he was keeping the bodies of the previous six sisters, finding them, and then calls her brothers, and then her brothers come over and kill Mr. Bluebeard. It was fairly popular with, you know, families, for, you know, whatever reason. It had an absolutely insane number of props, costumes, and different curtains. All of it ridiculously combustible. It should come as no surprise that while the troupe was going on tour with a play, a brief fire occurred in a theater in Cleveland. Quickly extinguished, the audience barely even knew it was there. This didn't stop them from going on with the show. They weren't worried at all about fire safety, especially in the Iroquois. They were told the Iroquois Theater was the best of the best in all things. We call this foreshadowing. Tickets were for $1.50 to sit in the very bottom parquet or the first four rows of the second balcony, a dollar for the rest of the second balcony, $0.75 cents for the first four rows of the cheap seats, and then $0.50 cents for the rest. If you couldn't get a seat, it was $0.35 cents a ticket for standing room only. The box seats ran you a whopping 15 bucks a piece. That 15 bucks is $466 today, so they were not cheap tickets. Literally the day of the opening theater, while work was still being done to finish the theater so it was ready for plays, a gas tank exploded in one of the dressing rooms and destroyed several costumes. A carpenter by the name of John Bickles was working in a dressing room opposite of the explosion and only narrowly escaped burns during the fire. He expressed concerns about the fire to the construction company and whether or not the theater was actually safe after no report was made to the fire department and the crowd was not notified. He was then fired, so it's pretty safe to say that if our good Captain Jennings earlier had decided to pursue any of this, he likely would have been fired or induced to retire. Anyway, we're off to a good start. In the time between opening day and December 30th, 1903, the day of the fire, crowds for the Iroquois Theater had been fairly lackluster. There had been several riots in Chicago- based all around labor. There had been work strikes and things like that, and general attendance at the Iroquois Theater had been relatively disappointing for the owners of the theater because, again, if people aren't going to the theater, they're not making their money, and if they're not making their money, the world stops because everything is all about money. In an effort to get people to show up to the theater, they dropped the prices a bit. This worked, and the matinee show for Mr. Bluebeard on December 30th appeared to be sold out. The day of December 30th, 1903 started out cold and would only get colder, but that didn't stop people from getting excited about going to the theater. Eddie Foy, the ostensible star of Mr. Bluebeard, despite not playing Bluebeard, wanted to bring his whole family, but was told by the box office there was no more room. So instead, he decided to bring his oldest son, Brian, to the show. He got there about an hour before the 2 p.m. curtain time and saw a growing crowd of people outside the theater. There was approximately 1,900 people that were going to be in this theater for this showing, well above capacity, and most of them were women and children going to see a comedy, many of them going to the theater for the first time in their lives, as the Wednesday matinee show was considered the bargain show. They would dropped prices for it. It was also packed full because it was Christmas holiday for the children around Chicago, so it was full to the brim with grade school and high school kids. It was so full that Foy couldn't find a seat for his son, so he put him in a stool off stage in the wings where he could see the stage and all the backstage happenings. He was ecstatic. The play was going off without a hitch to the sold-out crowd. Children were laughing and enjoying themselves. The parents were laughing and enjoying themselves. It was a wonderful rendition. The first act ended and the second act began. During the musical number Pale Moonlight, a single carbon arc lamp was supposed to be on to set the mood for the romantic song featuring the eight wives of Bluebeard before he kills them dancing with young cadets from the Hussars. That single carbon arc lamp was positioned 15 feet above the stage and was behind the drop curtains in a curtain called the Tormentor that is there to prevent the audience from being able to see into the wings of the backstage. This carbon arc lamp That reaches a ridiculously high level of heat was sitting only about a foot away from both of these curtains. It literally hits several thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Basically this arc lamp is used by creating an electrical discharge between two carbon tubes. The tubes are touched together then slowly drawn apart to create an arc across the gap, creating a light. These arcs can reach four to five thousand degrees Fahrenheit. The arc lamp in question was being run by Mr. William McMullen, the assistant electrician. During the middle of the scene, McMullen heard a slight crackling sound, and flames began to spread on the edge of the tormentor curtain. He tried to put it out with his hands, but was unsuccessful as the fire began to spread up to the curtains above him. He yelled at the man on the catwalk above him to put it out, but by that point, it was too far gone. The fire quickly began to spread farther up into the curtains and ignite the scenery hanging above the stage. By this point, the fire was out of control. The stagehands ran out onto the stage and tried to use one of the fire extinguishers on the fire. He did not succeed, and it fell uselessly down on the ground because the fire was just too high up for him to throw the material high enough. They tried to drop the asbestos fire curtain down to help keep the fire on the stage and not spread out into the audience, but at one point after one of the sequences in the play, a light that was supposed to be rotated back into a crevice in the wall was not. So when they dropped the asbestos curtain down to prevent the spread to the actual audience, it got stuck and didn't come down at all. They could have raised the curtain a bit, put the reflector all the way back in where it was supposed to go, then lowered the curtain and solved the problem. But the guy lowering the curtain couldn't see what was blocking the curtain because of, you know, all of the smoke, and the other guys helping him couldn't be heard over the now screaming audience of 2,000 people. Not that it super mattered anyway, since the asbestos curtain was actually asbestos mixed with wood pulp and probably wouldn't have lasted all that long anyway. It may have saved some lives because any impediment to fire is helpful but combined with the other factors it most likely would have been minimal help if any help at all at this point eddie foy stuck his son with a stagehand who got the boy out of the theater then foy ran out onto the stage and started shouting instructions at people and tried to calm the crowd he was standing there doing his absolute best to help these people and helped the terrified crowd of women and children while the burning chunks of scenery fell onto the stage around him. Literally, parts of the scenery were falling onto the stage and could have fallen on him at any moment. Instead, he stood there at great risk to himself to try and help these people to evacuate while his life was in danger. Not long after this, some of the stagehands and performers in the back escaped out the main rear door. The problem with this is the doors were large double doors made specifically to be able to get the huge set pieces in the area. When these doors were open, it allowed a ton of air inside the building, further feeding the fire and letting it spread further and grow faster. Now, originally, the building had a vent directly above the stage that were supposed to open in case of a fire to allow heat and smoke to escape up because, you know, heat goes up. These stagehands had tried to open this when the fire first broke out, but they found that it was nailed shut. So, at that point, realizing that they needed to get the heck out of Dodge, they ran out the back, opened those big double doors, and when that wind came in, it created a fireball that blew it out, ducked underneath the asbestos curtain that was only hanging partway down, and out into the audience, where it would have killed several people. At this point, the fire has spread throughout the theater. It's up in the area above the stage, ripping through the scenery up there. There's panic inside the theater of people trying to get out, To make sure that they have all their children and are able to escape. But then came the problem with the fire escapes. Remember earlier I said some of the doors were blocked by draperies? Can't have those ugly doors ruining the vibe now, can we? And then, even if the drapes weren't there, it's a darkened theater and all the power went out. Not long after the fire started, all of the power in the entire theater went out, so it was completely pitch black. So you have the orange glow of the fire to see but the rest of it is obscured by dark black smoke because a lot of that stuff is going to burn with a really, really thick black smoke. So your visible visibility is going to be extremely minimal, especially if you're in those upper two balconies because that upper layer development is going to be very, very, very rapid because of all that stuff up there up top above the stage is going to burn super duper well. So you're going to have a really thick upper layer of smoke that you're not going to be able to see, and it's going to descend Really rapidly. So if you're lucky enough to be down in the parquet or down below the smoke layer, you're going to be able to see fairly well. But if you're not, you are screwed. And if you're in one of the lower areas where the the ceiling's not so high, you're going to be even more screwed because you're basically going to have to crawl at that point. And crawling when two thousand people are trying to get out of a building is you know not good. So even if the drapes weren't there in front of the doors, you can't see them anyway. Not to mention, you're going to be disoriented from the screaming, the heat. You're going to be feeling especially noxious, nauseous because of all of that superheated gas coming down. So you're going to have some already hazy, critical thinking. So it's going to be difficult already, even if you can find the door in the first place. But let's say you found a door. Excellent. You can get out. Oh, wait, no. The fire escape doors have locks on them. Well, they're not really locks, but they were similar to doors on a semi, where you have to move a lever, lift the bar, rotate the bar inwards, and then open the door. Many of the theater goes in Chicago had never seen this type of lock before, had never seen this type of door handle before, so they had no idea how to work it. And when you've got, again, several hundred people behind you trying to get out said door, You don't have the time to stop and think, how do I work this thing? Because it's likely that had they had the time, had they not been being pushed forward by, you know, seven, eight hundred people behind them trying to get out the same door and there wasn't a massive fire ripping across the stadium and they're trying to keep track of where their children are in this massive crush of people, then they probably could have figured out how to open the doors. But if you combine all of those factors there's absolutely no way anybody could figure out how to work these doors that shouldn't have had these locks them in the first place they did manage to get some doors open baseball player frank Hausman was in attendance at the iroquois theater on the day of the fire and him as well as his friend charles dexter were able to get one of the fire escape doors open because frank houseman had one of the the locks that was on these doors on one of his ice boxes back home so he knew how to open it so Frank Hausman and Charles Dexter were able to open the door and help people escape out the fire, door, the fire escape doors. But then came the next issue. The fire escapes weren't finished. But it didn't really super matter even if they were, because the fire escape doors swung so far open that when they were opened all the way, there was only about an inch or so of space between the door and the iron railing for the fire escape. This meant that when the doors farther down the fire escapes were open, it blocked those escaping from higher up from getting down. So basically, the door swung open and basically made a wall on the fire escape. So if you're on the second floor and you come out, you open your door all the way because all these people are trying to come out. So you got to open the door all the way. It stops about at 90 degrees from the opening. So then the people coming down from the third floor are now blocked by the fire escape door and they can't close it because of the crush of people coming out of the second floor. So basically, all these people are trapped in a giant crush on the fire escape. This crush made people trip and fall and become trampled. Some fell over the edge of the railing to the ground below. Some people decided to jump. In fact, one of the doors was almost two feet off the actual fire escape. So in order to get out, you had to jump down two feet. Nearly impossible to do in the large dresses that were in style at the time. Combined with the crush of people in the back yelling forward and those at the front yelling back, many more would trip, fall, and be pushed over the railing or simply trampled. The people in the building across the alley noticed what was going on and placed ladders and other long pieces of wood across the gap in an effort to help people climb across. This saved some people, but others slipped and fell, were pushed, or the makeshift bridges slipped and dropped people down to their deaths. Eventually, with the bodies on the ground of the jumpers and those that fell, some that fell from the fire escape would survive the fall by landing on the bodies of the already dead in the alley. The alley the fire escape was located on was known as Couch Place Before the Fire. Afterwards, it was referred to as the Alley of Death. But that was just the fire escapes. A large portion of the audience in the parquet that's the ground floor, remember, were able to escape out the fire escapes conveniently on the ground and out the main entryway because there was nothing blocking them. Those in the upper two levels wouldn't be so lucky. You see, after the show started, the audience in the upper floors were locked into their areas by accordion gates, so they couldn't sneak back down to the more expensive seats. On the second floor, hundreds of people died trapped by two sets of doors. One set of bifold doors was locked. One set wasn't actually locked, but the way the floor was built, the doors wouldn't open properly, trapping people inside and killing them. People in the front would be crushed against the locked doors, suffocate, and fall to the ground, only to be crawled up on top of by people behind them. Then they would be crawled on top of, and so on, until allegedly the bodies reached to a height of about 10 feet around some of the doors. Engine Company 13 of the Chicago Fire Department was notified by a stagehand who had sprinted down the street to tell them the building was on fire, because remember, there were no fire alarms and there was no way for them to phone the outside world that the building was on fire when it caught on fire, so they literally had to send someone running to tell the fire department. The fire department initially tried to save those people who had become trapped behind the doors on the fire escape, but the life-saving nets were black, and the smoke was black. So it was pretty hard to properly aim to land on them and even sometimes when they did the life-saving nets would break. Once the fire department made it inside the building they made quick work of the fire. By all accounts it was out within 15 or 20 minutes of them getting there but it didn't matter the damage was done. 575 people would be lying dead inside the Iroquois theater 27 more would die over the next several weeks, bringing the total death toll to 602 people, making it the deadliest structure fire in the United States' history. Just for reference, the Great Chicago Fire, which burned down almost 18,000 buildings, killed only about 300 people. This was death on a new level within Chicago. Obviously, after the fire, they had to do something with all of those bodies that were trapped inside. And just to make sure that the Alley of Death name would really stick, the only place they really had to put the bodies while they waited to transfer them to morgues and to their loved ones was Couch Place. It's said that the bodies were packed so high throughout the whole alley that it was six feet tall with people. Police tried desperately to keep people back and keep people out of the alley so they could do their jobs, but frankly, it was nearly impossible. Men, women, were desperate to find out if their loved ones or their children were among the dead. They wrapped the dead in blankets and would pile them in whatever they could find to carry the nearly 600 dead to where they could be identified in a better place rather than having to find them stacked in an alleyway, merely feet from where they met their terrible end. In the aftermath of the fire, many people would be arrested in connection with allowing the fire to occur, but thanks to the time-honored Chicago tradition of corruption, no one would ever be charged. There would, however, be major changes to fire safety around the country. Theaters in Chicago would be shut down for weeks afterwards to work on fire safety in theaters. After the fire, there would be new standards widths for aisles and exit doors, limits placed on the number of people allowed in a building, Standing room tickets were basically eliminated countrywide, scenery would be required to have fireproofing material on it, sprinklers were to be installed in all theaters, the ventilation shafts would absolutely have to be open, aisles would have lighting like what you see in movie theaters now along the walkways, and the red exit sign would be made in the aftermath that had separate power sources than the standard building power. The fire would also help with the development of the panic bar So that as long as you push somewhere on the bar, it would open the door and could still be locked from the outside to prevent people from sneaking in through the inside, through the outside and to the inside. And just to come full circle here, the actual structure of the Iroquois theater was pretty much undamaged by the fire. So the structure was absolutely fireproof. The contents inside, not so much. And that was a deadly lesson that Chicago had to learn. In fact, the Iroquois Theater would later reopen as the Colonial Theater and then closed down in nineteen twenty five and was torn down and rebuilt in its spot was the Oriole, Oriental Theater. It is now known as the James M. Nederlander Theater. There is no memorial in the location of the Iroquois Theater marking where the fire took place, but you can still see the effects of the Iroquois Theater and fire coats. That are still standard to this day that were implemented countrywide after this disaster so that something like this would never ever happen again. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, Disastrous H-S-T-R-Y so history without the vowels. You can also follow me on Instagram, Disastrous History spelled correctly. Same with TikTok, Disastrous History spelled correctly. I do some interesting videos on fire or fires and uh, disasters that don't have enough information to make a full episode out of. So, if you want to follow me on those places, you can. Uh, I also have a website, disastershistory.com, dot com. And if you want to donate, because unfortunately, running a podcast is not free. My uh, coffee is k o dash f i. slash disasters history. It is just a donation. There's no content or anything hidden behind it, and there likely never will be. So, yeah. Um, If you want to let me know how I'm doing, send me an email at disastroushistory at gmail.com. I'm glad you guys are all here. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. I hope that the last break will be the last break in a long time. So I'm very happy you guys are listening. My listeners are awesome. You guys are interact with me. They're awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Remember to stay safe and always check your smoke detector batteries.